us. I'm Bree, uh, Digital Content Manager at Push Black, and this is... Darren Wallace, video producer at Push Black. Happy to be here with you all to discuss abolition and the death penalty. So thank you all for joining us. Yeah. Um, so the overarching idea of what we're getting into tonight is that the death penalty is a carceral non-solution to societal problems that uh, won't be solved by punishment. Abolitionists know we have to address violence at the root and not through state violence. Um, so getting right into it, um, Darren, help us frame this conversation. Uh, let us know how does the U.S. function as a culture of punishment? Oh, that's such a great question and such a great framing for what this space is, a culture of punishment. Well, first, I think it's important to kind of foreground that America is the most punitive nation in the world, incarcerating more than 2.3 million people. So that's one of every 136 of its residents. To put it in further perspective, uh, if the U.S. prison population were its own city, it would actually be among the country's top 10 largest cities. More people are behind bars in America than there are people living in major cities such as Philadelphia and Dallas. $80 billion is still spent each year on corrections facilities alone. And according to the Prison Policy Initiative report, that $80 billion dwarfs the $68 billion of our budget dedicated to the Department of Education. So that really like, shows how our government places what into like a priority, right? Uh, so black activists are actually renaming this justice system the punishment system because it's actually about punishing black people, right? And maintaining a system of white supremacy. And that's why all of what we see today can really be directly linked back to slavery, as we mentioned in previous live conversation before, and the black codes. So really this, this punishment system is not broken. It's working exactly as is intended. But with that said, Bree, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of light on how this culture of punishment functions on the everyday quotidian level. Yeah, so Abolitionist Futures uh, has some key insights for us to clarify what we mean when we say the U.S. functions as a culture of punishment. So the carceral, the carceral everywhere, right? So look around and we see punitive logics in our schools, workplaces, public services, families, and our relationships. The carceral is embedded in the social norms and institutions that we inhabit. It's culturally ingrained um, in our consciousness, basically. So by carceral, abolitionists refer to logics and practices that normalize punitive responses to harm. It's the common sense that equates justice with punishment. Um, and so when harm occurs, carceral logics encourage us to locate the cause of the problem in an individual and then isolate that individual and punish that individual and often the community that the person uh, is a part of. So sometimes this is done by the state, but it's also done in more subtle everyday ways um, that normalize vindictive and punitive behavior uh, and celebrate this redemptive violence. And so some examples. Uh, a kid misbehaves in a classroom, so we exclude them from the entire group, um, or we exclude them from the classroom as a whole. Um, our partners are hurtful to us, so we give them the cold shoulder. A prisoner who needs housing support upon release is refused assistance due to their conviction, their prior conviction. So um, these are all examples of how carceral logic show up in our everyday lives. And so that if we don't challenge these carceral logics and practices at the everyday level, it's hard to challenge them at the institutional level. So we have to, you know, start where we're at and, and go up from there. And so yeah. another like common um, 
I guess, ideology that we hear when we're discussing the death penalty um, is if you kill someone else, don't you deserve to die too? This whole thing of eye for an eye. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, that's such a great question, Bree, because it really speaks to um, how many of us still operate in this cultural punishment, even if we don't know it. And I often hear this, this phrase thrown around, an eye for an eye. And it really throws me for a loop. Uh, one reason is because the U.S. often frames itself as a Christian nation with Christian values. But that quote is explicitly from the Old Testament, right? Not Jesus Christ. But with that said, I actually felt it would be important to bring in the Christian perspective. So I took a look at Christianity, to, Christianity today and how they look at or how they understand an eye for an eye. So they took a really deep dive, a historical and critical look at that phrase, and what they found has a lot of interest and insight for us. So the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is found in Exodus chapter 23, verses 23 through 25, as well as Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the rule really seems to have applied to social equals rather than relationships between masters and slaves. Now, that's important to remember, right, considering like our individual citizen relationship with the state, right, that power and balance. Now, they also tell us that the rule is found in other ancient law codes, notably the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi. And what they all have in common is that the law is about limiting revenge rather than promoting it. It's a way of controlling the human instinct towards a spiral of violence with injury, with an injury provoking a worse injury, which then provokes an even worse injury in return, right? So, but in the New Testament, Jesus actually takes it a step further. So rather than just limiting revenge, he seems to forbid it entirely. So in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you in the cheek, turn your right cheek to them and let them slap that also. Um, now, that can easily be understood as a pacifist ideology, which I don't completely wholesale agree with. But I think it's really, really important to think through how we keep the state in check and how we prevent further, further harm kind of perpetuating itself. But with that said, though, I'm really curious, Bree. Um, does the U.S. criminal punishment system, justice system, is it rehabilitative? At any level, yeah. do you see any rehabilitative potentials in it at all? Not really. Um, so just like the U.S. claims to be a Christian country with Christian values, the criminal justice system claims to be rehabilitative, and it's not quite that. So um, some examples, both in uh, with imprisonment and then also the death penalty itself. Uh, so punishment doesn't end after imprisonment, right? It's often extremely difficult to people for people to actually live once prison and the lives of many people uh, that are claimed by the death penalty in the system that values retribution over rehabilitation that's our system and so mm. um, some ways that prison doesn't rehabilitate folks is that formerly incarcerated people are 10 times more likely to be unhoused after their incarceration um, and they're even further punished this remember this culture of punishment um, by not being able to find a job or housing um, and another um, more tangible example is gate money. Um, so this is an example of how the system doesn't work in favor of actually rehabilitating folks. So in states like California and Colorado, some people leave prison with 200 or $100 respectively. And at the lower end, in states like Alabama and Louisiana, people often leave prison with as little as 10 or $20 in their pocket. Some people leave with nothing at all. And so this just... Oh my God. Yeah, to perpetuate a system... Um, of punishment 
Um, and so we have to ask ourselves what kind of rehabilitation system punishes you again and again and again after you've done your time. And then on the death penalty itself, right, obviously rehabilitation can't happen if someone is not alive. But as long as a person, uh, as someone in prison remains alive, there's hope in different ways for their rehabilitation um, and or more like most often their exoneration many people are found to be innocent who are on death row and so um another example is khalif browder uh who's is even more like a, a example of this culture of punishment that we live in that doesn't rehabilitate Crowder spent three years on Rikers Island without being convicted of a crime. His case never went to, crowd, uh, to trial, and it was allegedly over still in a backpack 16. Two of his years on Rikers was in solitary confinement. He was abused, starved, beaten. And so when he was released, of course, his mental health had plummeted, and he suffered like severe psychological damage um, before, unfortunately, taking his own life. So these are all examples from both imprisonment, the death penalty, solitary, everything um, under this system, there's no justice here. It's not actually looking to rehabilitate folks. Um, and it's all rooted in, in white supremacy and maintaining that control. Um, and so part of the reason that the US is so backwards when it comes to criminal justice, especially as we'll talk about later in comparison to other places, is because we don't fix problems of common sense solutions the root issues just keep band-aiding and punishing and and layering things instead of getting to the root of it and so yeah yeah that brings us to another point about what alternative you know if there are any to the death penalty so a lot of folks say isn't it better to execute someone um than to lock them forever well you know whenever i hear that it, it really reminds me of just how you just mentioned this band-aid approach um to these social iniquities right um just so just thinking about life so life without the possibility of parole for abolitionists raises many of the same objections as the death penalty right life without parole um it really undermines the inherent right to life to lock up a prisoner and take away any and all hope of release is really to resort to another death sentence right because they're still only able to leave prison upon death and it's really commonly assumed that the universal alternative to the death penalty really is a life sentence. But I think it's really important for us to know that not all countries even have a life sentence. So, yeah, yeah, it was pretty profound. Um, preparing for this chat, digging into it, we learned that in Germany, the constitutionality of life imprisonment was actually questioned way back in the 70s through their federal constitutional court. And they recognized that a whole life sentence really entails the loss of personal dignity and more importantly, or not more importantly, or just as relatedly, the denial of the right to rehabilitation, right? So following Germany's lead, many constitutional courts in countries such as France, Italy, and Namibia, they've all recognized that those subject to life sentences have a fundamental right to be considered for release. In Mexico, life without the possibility of parole was actually declared unconstitutional by their Supreme Court, and this is important. The reason being is because life without the possibility of parole is amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. Very powerful language there. So it's important for us to take a step back and remember that it's not an either or, right? It's not life sentence or death penalty, right? We have to really imagine and move beyond retribution we have to remember that the death penalty in America is quite flawed, just like sentencing practices, right? Who gets life? These are all expensive policies, and they're defined by bias, error, and those practices, they tend to target the most vulnerable people in our society. 
So for instance, this report, in the extreme, women serving life without parole and death sentences in the U.S., authored by the Sentences Project, shares that one in every 15 women in prison are serving a life sentence, and nearly 2,000 of these have no chance for parole. Now, another 52 women in the U.S. are awaiting execution, but many women serving extreme sentences, where this is really important, right? Many women serving these extreme sentences or even on the death penalty are uh, on death row, they were actual victims of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse long before they ever committed a crime. Now, this report also finds that two-thirds of those serving life sentences are people of color. Racial and ethnic disparities plague this entire system from arrest to conviction, and it's even more pronounced amongst those serving life sentences. So, some more startling stats. One in every five black men in prison are actually serving a life sentence. So, yes, 8,600 people nationwide are serving parole eligible or really virtual life sentences for crimes they committed as minors. Now, with that said, Bree, I wonder if you could shed a little bit more light on who, all, who else is vulnerable to these sentencing practices. Yeah, so there's also a greater risk to people with mental uh, illnesses uh, that will be executed without review of their convictions or sentences, even the law forbids executing people who are mentally competent. So people with mental illness are more vulnerable to police pressure, are less uh, able to also give their counsel meaningful assistance. Nearly 10% executed since 1976 have been so-called volunteers who gave up their appeals. But mental health experts ex estimate that at least 20% of people on death row today have serious mental illnesses and over 75% of those people who waive their appeals suffer from documented mental illness. Um, so we wanted to address that last week uh, someone from our pushback audience um, chimed in stating that they would rather uh, have the death penalty than life in prison. And many can understand why as life and long-term prisoners are often subjected to worse conditions and treatment than other prisoners. And so these conditions are highly restrictive, damaging, again, to physical and mental health with no effort or willingness to invest in rehabilitation or consider alternate, uh, alternative sanctions or early release. So these prolonged deprivations of, of liberty um, and basic rights that accompany a life, a sentence that's life without parole can lead to numerous effects, including desocialization, the loss of personal responsibility, identity crisis, um, increased dependency on the penal institution. Uh, so this loss of responsibility and dependency um, that results from these prolonged detention, like sentences of detention, uh, they hamper any effects at rehabilitation, um, any efforts at rehabilitation. So life without parole is not an effective method of reducing crime or rehabilitation. It's merely a way of continuing to contribute to the uh, prison population growth. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow, thank you so much for breaking that down. My goodness. Yeah. And um, just checking to see if have any questions. We don't have a question, but someone chimed in saying public education being an institution fits right into all of this. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Those carceral logics are everywhere. Yes, the school to prison pipeline is a thing. Thank you for that comment. And feel free to chime in with any more comments or questions. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, can you, can't talk right now. To continue going into the death penalty itself, 
does the death penalty, we got into this a little bit last week, but does the death penalty actually offer closure or solace to victims' families? Wow. Okay. So that's a very powerful question. Um, I thought it was really important to bring in the voices of um, victims who've had family members slain and how they responded to that. Um, so I have here a quote from Sharon, who declined to give her last name and whose brother was murdered, as quoted in the 2019 article titled, How Murder Victim Families Are Responding to the Death Penalty Hawk in California. Sharon states that, to her, more than justice is healing. And you don't reach that point of forgiveness if that man has been executed. If he would have never come to that point of remorse, or he would have never come to that point of remorse, I don't think. And I don't think he would have ever come to that point of being able to look us in the eye and literally ask us to forgive him, knowing that we did not owe it to him in any way. The burden was lifted from my shoulders when I realized that I was able to forgive him, and it was truly amazing. It was life-changing. And I figured if that's how it felt for me, I can't imagine what it felt like for him. So it really makes me think about the possibility of redemption, rehabilitation, once forgiveness is kind of brought into the conversation here. But Bree, I know you have a group, uh, Ohioans to Stop Executions, and they have some interesting reflections to share as well. Uh oh, let's see, I can't hear you, Bree. Let's see. Sorry, I forgot to take myself off mute. I live in the city and there was. <laughs> uh, so the advocacy group Ohioans to Stop Executions in their flyer called the, Pro the False Promise, How the Death Penalty uh, Fails Victims' Families, in this flyer they write, to be meaningful, justice should be fair, accurate, and healing for crime survivors and their families. Um, the death penalty is none of those things, as we've learned, and capital punishment only prolongs pain for victims' families, dragging them through an agonizing and lengthy process that holds out the false promise of healing through an execution, mm -hmm. uh, often resulting in a different sentence in the end. So in Ohio, people on death row serve an average of 17 years and two months, quite a long time. Um, and this wow. process, yeah, this long process is traumatizing for victims' families, uh, both because of the added time and the stress that accompanies capital cases and just the high profile like nature of these cases. So without the death penalty in the mix, the healing process for them can begin sooner and families can grieve in private and peace without the spotlight of this high profile um, case that often comes with like news cameras and interviews and all these things um, because of the death penalty. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no solace for the victims through that process. Thank you. Um, which is really important uh, because the families deserve to, to grieve and heal outside of the public eye, you know? Um, yeah. And so to keep going uh, deeper into capital punishment, let's say, what about terrorists? What about capital punishment for terrorists? Oh, that's a great question. Great, great question, especially for the U.S. context. So <clears throat> it's important to note that governments often resort to the death penalty in the aftermath in the aftermath of violent attacks, but really to demonstrate that they're doing something to protect national security. But the threat of execution is unlikely to stop anyone prepared to die for their beliefs. So, for example, say a suicide bomber, right? Um, executions are just as likely to create martyrs whose memory becomes a rallying point for their organizations. Um, also, it's important to note that the death penalty is really a cheap way for politically inclined people to pretend that their fearful constituencies 
that something is actually being done to combat crime, right? Um, but we know just from stats we've discussed in other conversations that the death penalty actually doesn't deter further terrorist actions or any sort of violence, right? But what's really important to note around like the terrorist framing and how should we respond to terrorist violence with the death penalty or life sentencing, well, we have to be really careful of endorsing the state's framing of terrorism, right, or terrorists, considering how racialized that term is, as well as how that racialized usage gets levied against black radicals and black activists, black organizations. So people accused of terrorism are especially likely to be sentenced to death after unfair trials. Many are condemned on the basis of confessions extracted through torture, and in some cases, special military courts are actually set up through counterterrorism laws that have sentenced civilians to death, really undermining all international standards. So I'm very cautious with just blanketly deciding, okay, terrorists need to die. We have to remember to be highly contextual around how we're using that label, right? Um, but that's a great, great question. One that I still wrestle with when it comes to like the idea of like white supremacist terrorism and what should be our communal response to them. Um, just speaking a little bit personally, I know when the uh, Dylan Roof incident happened, um, yeah, I, I immediately felt like that eye for an eye sentiment within myself. However, we know like if we endorse the state's ability to kill folks, right, that always ends up targeting the most vulnerable people. Um, so it is a tough tension that we have to wrestle with, but we just know the options that we're given with right now are just not enough. And to that point, you know, I'm really curious, Bree, around the U.S.'s comparison to other countries and other nation states. Um, why have some U.S. states continued? Well, well, specifically just thinking about the states in our country, why have some U.S. states continued to use the death penalty while others have just a totally abolished the practice? Yeah. So for starters, um, although it wasn't used for nearly two decades, so the Trump administration, capital punishment is still legal at the federal level, and the U.S. military also retains the death penalty. So that could be one reason why. Um, but here's another perspective. According to a Time article, many of the 23 U.S. states that have already banned the death penalty, they're largely places that didn't really sentence many people to death to begin with. Um, so it's especially crucial that we keep advocating um, for abolition in the states that have heavily imposed the death penalty for a long time. Some of those states are Texas, Virginia, Oklahoma, and Florida. Um, and one of them in 2020, Virginia abolished the death penalty. Um, and they're the first Southern state to do so. So it's really important. Um, it shows that, you know, like this abolition happened in Virginia states has been using the death penalty for centuries so it can signify it's signifying that the state is shifting its uh politics but also it might be happening at the national level and it just illustrates how unpopular capital punishment is starting to become it has become it for a while with the american public um and so if abolition can gain steam in a very southern state like virginia abolitionists argue that it can gain traction elsewhere in across the south in those other states that are just you know, gung-ho on keeping things as they are. Um, yeah. To that effect, um, outside of this, the U.S., we talked about earlier how uh, the U.S. continues to beat out larger countries and more countries like larger countries, India and China, um, and then other countries like Russia and the Philippines for having the highest incarceration rate in the world, um, even though a lot of, like, those countries, specifically India and China, have way more people than we do. Um, Yes. So on the flip side of that, there are some black nations that we can look to who have uh, recently and in previous years abolished the death penalty. So Sierra Leone uh, abolished the death penalty last year in 2021. 
And according to the death penalty project, uh, it was a progressive move there because instead of kind of like we talked about before, just replacing the death penalty with mandatory life sentences, they've moved to like a system of judicial uh, discretion where judges can like oh, other, yeah, other mitigating circumstances. So it doesn't necessarily have to go from we don't have a death penalty more to okay everybody that was on death row is now in prison for life they're working around that um which is great um yes yes yeah. wow and then thank you for that yeah, yeah no i just wanted to shout out a few other countries other black countries that we can look to um specifically in west africa that have also abolished the death penalty so there's sierra leone malawi uh guinea benin cote d'ivoire senegal and togo so there's lots of other countries um out here like doing this abolition thing and it's a very real and possible thing for us here too thank you so much i feel like so often folks need like tangible examples of where this is taking place right um so thank you for pulling that together um there this is happening right this is not just an imaginary vision people are putting this into place now and with that said we actually have a wonderful question um let's see we have a guest who asks, where do we start to make significant impact and change within the injustice system? Is it continue, do we continue voting? Do we need more people of color to take positions within? I will personally go to law school. Oh, thank you so much for your enthusiasm. I would say um, it's, we have to fight on all fronts, right? We have to engage in electoral politics, but we also know the options that are given to us through that, that mode of political participation often just isn't enough. So we have to get involved in our own communities. Now, Bree highlighted the culture of punishment and how that operates on a very everyday level. We're all kind of involved in. I feel like that's a great place to start, just kind of taking account of how carceral logics are kind of already operating in our own communities, in our own workplaces, in our own kind of cultural institutions, and really thinking through other processes that doesn't involve the police or the state to really mitigate and address harm and really kind of repair uh, violent incidences, right? There's that, but then there's also, um, we're going to shout out a few wonderful abolitionist resources you all should engage, um, but yeah, find what orgs are already kind of doing this work and see how you can support with your skill set, with your knowledge base, with your lived experience, um, because there's so many groups that just need more personnel. Um, so I'll take a step back. I don't know, Bree, if you had like any reflections on like, where do folks get started to address this? Yeah, I love that. And uh, how you started with, we have to take up, you know, arms on all fronts. That's kind of been how I've thought about it. So there are, many existing organizations that you can join in your own community and if you go back to what we were talking about at the beginning the u.s likes to band-aid things and and not address the root cause so there's so many ways that we can all be getting involved uh to address those root causes in our own hoods in our own community neighborhoods and i feel like everybody just has to take up a path you know what i mean maybe yours is food justice and you help run a community fridge um maybe yours is like working directly with people who've been imprisoned and sending funds or mutual aid or like whatever it is, pick a root cause of all these things and get to it and get involved. So that's what I think. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. And so what are some other resources um, to kind of do those things that we were talking about um, that folks can access to learn more about the failures of the death penalty and abolition? 
All right, all right. Uh, well, I want to shout out one resource we engaged earlier, abolitionistfutures.com. They're a great resource. So Abolitionist Futures, they are a collaboration of community organizers and activists in Britain and Ireland, actually, who are working together to build a future without prisons, without police, and without punishment. So they share information and resources to strengthen the network of existing and emerging abolitionist groups and allied organizations. And their essential aim is to support the flourishing of diverse, vibrant, and powerful abolitionist movements in Britain as well as Ireland. Another resource to check out is the Death Penalty Information Center. Many of the wonderful stats and information that we've been sharing with you all come from these resources. So the Death Penalty Information Center is a national nonprofit organization serving the media and public with analysis and information on issues concerning capital punishment. Now, the center produces groundbreaking reports on various issues related to the death penalty, such as its arbitrariness, its cost, innocence, and race, right? But they also offer a wide variety of multimedia resources, such as free online educational curricula, as well as a wonderful podcast series titled DPIC on the Issues. Now, they can be found at deathpenaltyinfo.org. Oh, Bree, did you have some resources you want to share with the folks? Yeah, thanks for sharing those, Darren. Um, for people who wanted to get even more involved in the fight to end capital punishment, be sure to check out the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Uh, they're the nation's oldest organization dedicated exclusively to the abolition of the death penalty. Um, you know, they're leading the national movement, and they have over more than affiliate organizations. So you can find out more about them at www.ncadp. Uh, Org. Yeah. All right. All right, y'all. Our time has come to an end. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to share with you all that we really can see through these historical, factual, contemporary examples how the U.S.'s culture of punishment directly correlates to the criminal legal system's continued use of the death penalty as a non-solution to societal problems. Now, the system as it's been uh, the system as it's designed and working is neither rehabilitative or just, especially when it comes to capital punishment. And considering the overwhelming racial disparity in sentencing within our white supremacist legal system whereby blackness is inherently deemed criminal, abolition really appears as the most liberatory path forward for creating a more just world for black folks. So we need reparative, restorative, and transformational processes that reimagine what justice could look like beyond calling for further harm perpetuated by the state. And we invite everyone to participate in this reimagining of justice. Thank you all. My name's Darren Wallace. I'm Bree. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll be here again next Tuesday um, with another Criminal Justice Live. So be sure to tune in. Same time. Um, we started this at um, around 6 um, p.m. Eastern time. And uh, one last thing. Somebody asked, will this live be saved? Yes, we save all of our lives. Um, it should be saved in the next few minutes after we hang up. And you'll be able to watch the play and the one we did last week and the more that are to come. So, yes, we'll save this. Thanks so much, y'all, and have a good night. Thank y'all.